Welcome back, everyone, to Deconstructing the Bible. I'm Jason Steffenhagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. And this is the start of a new season. The idea is to explore children's stories, but reconstructed. So children's stories reconstructed. You know, many of those stories that we grew up hearing maybe in Sunday school or at church, things like Adam and Eve and the creation story or Cain and Abel or Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's den, things like that. And we want to maybe reimagine them a little bit, kind of maybe take them down, deconstruct them a little bit, and maybe put them back together in a way that is maybe a little bit more adult, maybe a little bit more accurate to what the text is actually getting at. And so to do this, I have invited a number of different friends, colleagues, scholars, and wonderful people to join me this season because it's just better to do this in community than to just listen to me rant and rave like you have been for the last six months. So this new season, we're going to have a number of guests appearing on Deconstructing the Bible. And to get us started, I am joined by my friend, Lisa Adams. Lisa, do you mind giving us a little bio? Who is Lisa Adams? Sure. Let's see. Well, I was going to start with what I do, but I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't start with what I do. Who am I? I am someone who is really um, passionate about um, justice work. Um, I'm passionate about figuring out what it looks like um, to sit with people who are incarcerated and learn from them and learn together and try to work towards wholeness. Um, I think they have a lot to teach me about that. So that's, I'd say primarily, that is um, one of the big pieces of who I am. I help co-lead an organization called 40 Orchards, um, where I'm a teacher. And I love that work. It's been incredibly healing and it is a gift. And I am I'm married. I have two boys. I have a dog. Um, <laughs> and I'm currently in a seminary pursuing prison chaplaincy. So just a few things going on in your life. Just a couple things. Just a, little just bit. a couple things. And I can say, having sat with you in scripture circles with 40 Orchards, um, that it is just a wonder and a, and a privilege to learn from you, um, to be invited into your life and your world and to hear your creativity and to hear your life and to hear your story. And so, um, so thanks for just you. Thanks for the gift that you are um, and sharing that gift and for the posture of a learner that you take. Um, I love that you framed yourself as a learner, especially by those that our society often thinks we can't learn from. And so thank you so much for just the posture that you bring to the spaces that you're in and, and to this space. And so today we are going to talk about Eve to get this series and this season rolling. And so I know Eve is uh, someone that you have a lot of thoughts and energy about. So to get us started, as we will with most of these stories throughout this series, what was your first kind of invitation into the story of Eve? How did that first come about for you? I feel like Eve has always been a part of the story. I don't remember a particular time where I like first had a, I don't remember the first flannel graph of Eve. I remember like, but the picture of Eve is very clearly in the, in my mind of like, she is holding the, an apple. <laughs> she is, she has on a leaf dress. She's quite modest in that one. Um, she's got very long hair <laughs> and there's usually a snake nearby and Adam maybe off to the side. Um, so I have a really strong like mental like imagery of who Eve is. And I think 
for me, I mean, just to be really honest, like Eve is supposed to be like this woman that all women relate to in some way. Like Eve is kind of set up as like this, this archetype female. And because of that, um, <laughs> she's also this one that introduced all like sin to the whole entire world. Like she's the worst <laughs> in some ways. I feel like that's what I grew up with. Of like nobody came right out and said she's the worst, but really there's just this this undercurrent throughout the whole thing of uh, this is why women can't be trusted is mm. Eve. Like it starts from the beginning. Mm. Um, I, what I find fascinating about the way you just frame that is that there's almost a comedic element to it. And I, and I had that growing up too, right? It's that comedic element of like being a young teenager going to youth group. And it's like, we would just sit around and be like, oh, Eve, come on. Like if it weren't for Eve, we wouldn't have all right. these struggles of being hormonal teenage boys. We wouldn't have all these struggles in society and war. Like, come on, Eve. Like, we just blamed Eve for basically every atrocity ever in human history. And it was kind of like a fun running joke, or at least we thought it was. But you also are pointing to like a real, actual pain of like, what does it mean to be a woman and to have this caricature framing identity? And that was so closely there and present for many people, but it wasn't talked about in that way. It wasn't overtly talked about, about what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to view womanhood? Um, but it was kind of always on the periphery of that conversation, even though we didn't talk about it openly. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting, um, it felt like the juxtaposition as a woman growing up was either you were an Eve or you were a Proverbs 31 woman. <laughs> And like, there was like not a lot in between there, right? Like even the stories of women are so, um, like you got to look for them. You got to, you got to slow down and you got to find them in order to like hear that feminine voice. And um, I think that speaks to the, probably the time in which the Bible is written. Um, but I think there's so much beauty in there. Like that's what's been, mm -hmm. I think the reframing reconstruction work is in finding like, well, what is the gold that's there? Because there's gold. I think I just for a long time bought into the idea that um, everybody else knew better than me. So I just trusted people. With... It's such a well-known story that it gets retold that you just believe it without reading it. Right, right. <laughs> so... For anyone that's like super unfamiliar with the Bible, Eve, the story of Eve and, and part of the story of Eve or the one that was handed to us, many of us, was that her and Adam are the first humans in the garden and they have everything at their disposal. They're told not to eat from one tree. And then suddenly a talking snake comes along and says, Hey, this is really desirable. It will give you great knowledge. And why wouldn't God want you to eat it? And so then Eve takes the fruit and eats from this tree that she's been told not to. And then it seemingly all in all practical purposes, all hell seems to break loose. There's judgment, there's, division there's suddenly they're aware of their own nakedness there's shame there's disconnect from god they get tossed out of the garden it seems like everything is lost and it kind of all seems to hang on this one moment of eve choosing or taking grasping this fruit and and eating it and there's so many different subtleties that we miss in the story or that we take i think incorrectly for instance part of our blame for of eve is that that's what Adam does immediately when they're confronted by God. When he says, Ad, like, what did you do? 
his response is, well, she made me do it. And then her response is, well, the serpent made me do it. And so there's this instant blaming of the other. And I think that's what we've kind of done ourselves is we've been like, well, if Adam can blame Eve, then, then that's what we do too. Even though that was never actually the problem. It wasn't, we, we, you know, God doesn't say to Adam, oh yeah, you're right. Let's, let's turn our attention towards her. You know, that, that's a, that's an inaccurate source of blame for that moment. Um, we also tend to like frame it as if Eve was all by herself in that moment and that she was just kind of being tempted and, and was this weak person who gave in when the story actually is that Adam was right there and was not doing anything except eating as well, which I think is a part that we often miss in the story that this wasn't, this wasn't just an Eve thing. And I don't well, want to take away her agency, but. Right. Uh, but we also miss is that God is there. Mm. Right. Like we miss that, that God is there and, and is available to have a conversation. And I think that's like, part of it is just wondering, like, how do we as humans frequently engage and talk to somebody, something and totally forget like that, that God is available for the conversation. Ooh, that maybe where we need a great question. Like, where do we take it? Where do we take our questions? Where do we take the wonderings? And yeah. I just, I think I think of it. So for me, one of the key pieces is that sin is not named in the passage. So I have to like, so for me, it's like trying to reframe and remember, okay, this is not necessarily a conversation around sin. It may not be a good decision, but it's actually not sin. That's, that's the conversation. There's something else happening there. And so like actually sitting and wondering, like, what does this say about being human? Cause I think the, like the question of even shame, like every human can understand shame for the most part. Right. I mean, I, I don't know many that haven't who don't right. understand what shame feels like. Well, and I think what's so important and the reason why I would imagine you're bringing up sin in this moment is because in most of our Bibles, the framing of this story is the fall of humanity or original sin, you know, or, or, or if you were to study this in many seminaries around the world, it's going to be taught as the original sin. Like that's how we understand what it means to be human as originally sinful. And we point back to this moment, Genesis chapter three, to say, see, here is the beginning. This is the original idea of sin entering into humanity. And what you're reminding us of is that that word is not used. It's not used in the English translation or in the Hebrew. If we actually dive into the text in, into the original language itself, it's not there in either instance which, like you said, maybe should tell us something about what's really going on in, in this passage. Um, and, and like you said, it's not that there wasn't maybe an unhealthy decision or a maybe a decision that was made too quickly without consulting with God or with, you know, the living presence. Was it an evil decision? You know, what is it? Was it, was it the worst decision ever made? Um, or was it just a trajectory defining decision that is part of what it means to be human? Well, I'm thinking about like the humanity, because if this is like part of the thing with Eve that I've had to like kind of go back to is even like the formation of Eve. Like, how do we get to an Eve? <laughs> because, yeah, tell us about that. Remind people of well, how we get to an Eve. In the childhood story brain, it was. I mean, there's a very vivid imagery of like Adam, like is this human? God pulls this 
ripped rib out of Adam and then poof, we have Eve. And one of the things that is true, like they're not named Adam and Eve for a little bit. Right. So how, like part of it is helpful to know, to go into the Hebrew, to look at what the words are. And so there's a, it's complicated because the name Adam and the word Adam, like look the same, but they don't like one is a name and one is like the earthling, a human. Um, it's a description of, of the, the entity, right? It's not yes. a cow. It's not a horse, <laughs> not a chicken. No. It's not, it's not a tree. It's Adam. It's an earth creature, right? Or right. it's right. Cause yes. Adama is earth. So right. it describes this, this thing that comes from the earth. Cause God forms the human from the earth. And one of the things that I, so I have to give credit, like the Reverend Dr. Wilda Gaffney um, has taught me so much. Um, and she really drew this line for like this, this, I don't know. It's this, it's about translation. So our Bible translated rib. I, almost every translation says that God took a rib. But what is true is that word, Salah, is never used as rib anywhere else in the Bible. Hmm. It is always translated as side. And so I, like, it's not like a huge deal, but in some ways I'm like, yeah, but if God took a side hmm. out of the human, in my head, it just feels like there is more, like this feels like making it, like splitting it into two versus it being one. Ooh, interesting. It's like, it's like taking a mirror of looking at the two halves. And I just think of it as a way of like celebrating all the things that are in between. Hmm. I just like the rib has this weird connotation of like, you just are a little part. Right. Like there's just something weird in it for me with her kind of expanding on that and talking about it being the side and the side is actually used for like that word is the slaw is used in the description of building um, the tabernacle. Hmm. So it's an interesting, like, oh, there's a strength to a side. There's, there's substance to a side that feels bigger. Um, it feels like it's, <laughs> it's not like a, it's not like an afterthought. It's actually part of the original, what was available originally. So I like to think of the first, like the human has everything. That first human is full of everything, all the gendering, all the, th like, it's just everything. Right. And the, side... the language would support that because it's not right. a it's not a defined masculinity or femininity. It's it's more it's more gender neutral that mm -hmm. early in the text, uh, according to the Hebrew language. And so it is more of like there is a human in all of its humanness. And then that human has its side, you know, it's taken and another human is formed to come together to be humans with each other. Yeah, I, I really love, um, there's, a, there's also some work around the Ezer Konegdo, which is like sometimes poorly translated helpmate. Right. <laughs> Helper. <laughs> also, like I, like, I don't want to have attention. I don't think it's bad to be a helper. I don't think that's bad. I think what happens right. though is it becomes this idea of like over and under. Right. And um, 
I was Rabbi Foreman has a really interesting take on it. And he kind of points towards it's like this, it's like two sides that lean against each other and have a, like they hold each other up. Um, mm. There's like this tension and almost like a triangle. Yeah. Like a posture that like holds each other up. It's fascinating to think about. And like those words are used more so in like military terms and what God does. And so to think about that, that doesn't work in that over under, <laughs> but like, there's something that has happened in my upbringing and my, in the teaching that like, it's, it gets situated there. Like it, in the very beginning of the story that somehow women are supposed to be helpers to men. And that's not there. We just kind of in the retelling of the story, whether it's orally or in pictographs or in pictures, whatever we've done with it. Or just culturally, the way that we've yeah. watched men and women interact impacts translation as well. So our lived experience of the way humans operate has impacted how we understand certain terminology. Why is helper such a bad word? Because we should all be helpers all the time. Like that should be like, I mean, it's like another word for servant, you know, but like servant seems hierarchical, but yet isn't that what Jesus came to be? Like, I mean, this is what we are supposed to be as followers of Christ, as people of, you know, of this path, of this flow, of this way. And yet they've been turned into hierarchical terms, which then create subjugation which creates marginalization and oppression and it leads to all these other things that we've seen throughout history and we experience today and yet instead of running away from those terms like you're trying to do i think is like reclaim those terms like what if we understood helper differently right <laughs> like what yeah. if we saw it as like that triangle of like we push on each other in order to keep the thing up in order to support one another because that's what's really going on here what if instead of being this rib that we don't really need per se we could do without one <laughs> Like, what if it's like, what if it's like the other half of me? Like, what if it's the, the thing that, that, that now I need in order to be whole because we're meant for community. We're meant for, you know, belonging and we're meant for communion. And so there's like a reframing of the side. There's a reframing of helper. We are kind of reclaiming those concepts. that's the whole what it should be um I so for me like it became so personal um at this really weird intersection in my life of I didn't want to be a pastor but I had was in the leadership role at a church and so the senior pastor had um taught that it was fine for women to teach but there really needed to be a male in the senior like corner office and for a long time, like I like bought, like, I was like, well, I don't want to be a pastor. So that works. It's fine. I didn't wrestle with it because I didn't have to. And then there was a female pastor that was hired on staff. And I remember the day that she like realized that that's what was like, that was the culture she was swimming in. She didn't know that when she got hired. And I remember the pain. Mm. And then that's when I recognize like, oh, I actually need to care about this. Even if I'm not trying to be a pastor, I actually, I, I want to be a part of something that like, there was no doubt in my mind, she was called to be a pastor. She is one of the most tender, beautiful pastors I've ever met. Um, if you need some sort of like discernment and wisdom, highly recommend her. 
But for a long time, I just didn't care about it because it didn't impact me. And then I realized actually it impacts everything. Mm. Like it impacts my marriage. It impacts my friendships. It impacts in lots of ways. It impacted my career. Now I wouldn't change that experience because <laughs> I needed that experience to like move forward. But it's some of that stuff where you're like, ah, oh, man, I wish I would have wrestled with that in my twenties. Like I wish right. I could have done that earlier. <laughs> I I think what you're doing is you're pointing us to two really important concepts. And I'm going to try to remember both of them because they're so they're so good. One is we have to have to listen to the stories of those who are impacted by the way we understand scripture. And what you're bringing to our attention is that there was a community that is not unlike many, many, many communities out there where there was a system in place. And until the lived reality and story of someone was harmed by that system, that system was just going to keep going and and maybe still does. And in many spaces in Christianity and around our globe, it still is that way. And the stories of those who have been hurt by that system are marginalized or not listened to or silenced. And when they're silenced, they remain um, put down and they're not living into the fullness of who God has made them to be. There's, there's such a hindering of God's best for the world, right? Like you're saying, this woman, this beautiful pastor, probably at, at, in that space couldn't live into the fullness of who God created her to be because there was never going to be the opportunity to be that. And that's that's a that's the world missing out on someone's gift. And and that is something we should all mourn and we should all see as a loss. And, and that's, that's so challenging. And, and what you're also pointing us to is the need to, in a way, rediscover Eve's story to not have it be as simple as we've made it out to be. Because it's so easy to take a story that we learned a long time ago, or that we've only learned through one lens, and to then let it shape everything else. And what you're helping us see is the need to say, well, 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 let's slow down here. Let's slow down and really get into this story to see who this person was, and to see what actually happens in this story. Because the story of Genesis chapter three is not simply a story of them having disconnection and brokenness, which we can say there's shame there, there is brokenness, there is distance, right? And, and whether that's that that feels like God distancing, but really it's what they are scared of. They're scared of the vulnerability. They're scared of, they have fear and shame in those moments but God is always trying to move closer and there may be some correction needed, some discipline needed, right? Like, like every healthy parent would do for a child. And yet we see God constantly trying to move towards them, move towards Eve, move towards Adam, as there is a desire for reconciliation and something more healthy and dynamic about what it means to be human. Like even in addition to that move towards, I would say God is always with Mm, yeah. Like there's always a withness, no matter where they are, where they locate themselves or find themselves like God is there. So there's yeah. just this presence. And so there's, I just, it's really interesting how there's a way that sometimes that story gets told is that 
Like then you're far from God. That's it. You're done. And that's just not in the text. That is right. not there. Like God right. is talking to them through the whole thing. Right. And you and I in a different space in which you and I do some of this conversating, we recently talked about how Genesis chapter four starts with Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve, and they are offering a sacrifice to God, which means that somehow after this tragic brokenness, shame, fear, removal from the garden, they are still in such a dynamic relationship that they want to offer a sacrifice unto God. And so it's not that they were removed from God, it's that they were removed from the garden. And that's a very important distinction because I think so often the way I've always ended chapter three in my mind or the way it was framed for me is that there was a loss of relationship with God and they had to go out into the world and like struggle and toil and like maybe they'd get their relationship with God back. And that's not actually the story. God doesn't say, I'm not going with you into the world. Like, that's not what God says. God doesn't say, I'm not going. It just says, you don't get to stay here anymore. Well, it's also, I mean, I also had this, again, vivid imagery of like, it was like this barren wasteland desert with no one there. (laughs) And they had to like build the whole thing. And I said, I'll never forget when somebody's like, well, where did all the people come from that? Like, where are the other people? I mean, for a long time, Genesis is a very literal thing right. that happened. Right. And there are still some people that very much follow a literal translation of the Bible. But for me, it was like, yeah, this is a different story. This isn't about like, well, this is the things that happened. This is the way. There's like this invitation to explore the story of, so Eve's name is Hava, which in like, if we go to the verbal root is to, um, it's to live, to bring to life, um, to be made living. Mm. And like, so she, that's, that's Chava. And then you have Adam, Adam, who is like earthling human. And I just think like, oh, this is a story of what it is to be given life and to be human. Mm. Like, this is just what it is. It isn't that these two, like these two screwed the thing up. It's actually like, this is what we all like it, this is what we all discover about our lives. Right. And I don't think that <laughs> depends on how you see the garden of Eden. If you think it's this location that we can never get back to, or if you think like maybe we go in and out of the garden of Eden all the time in our lives. And it just Ooh. depends on how we see it. Wow. Right. Like there's just a lot of different ways to read it. And there's a lot of different ways to like get into the story and for the most part, the most helpful thing you can do when you're reading these stories is just go slow because we know it so well. We don't slow it down and go, wait, what did I that love say? that? I love that because that's kind of the whole point of this new season of deconstructing the Bible is to actually take a look at these stories. And I think one of the most important things we're going to have to do is slow down and to dive into specific names and words and ideas and places and histories and to really unpack what's going on here. And let's remember how this was maybe introduced to the community, how it was maybe first talked about in the community. When was it written down? Because that impacts the way it should be utilized. You know, you're pointing us to not a literal reading, not a scientific textbook, 
reading, but you're pointing us to a more, you know, metaphorical, mystical reading of Genesis chapter one and two and three and four. And we're diving into what it means to be human as opposed to just, well, who was the first human? What happened to them? Because if you're taking it literally, which is fine, like we can read it that way. But if you're going to do that, when they go out into the world, there's already humans out there. When Cain is sent away from community or leaves community, God marks him so that no one else kills him. Well, why would he need to be marked if it was just him and his two parents? Like, they're not going to take him out because then like all hope is lost for humanity. But apparently there's somebody else out there who might want retribution for a murderer, right? Want to, you know, not have him be a part of community. And yet he needs the protection of God. That would know Abel. Like they, they know this family. Right. Like, why would they ever know he killed somebody otherwise? Right. Right. Like, yeah. So there's some, there's something there for, for, for those of us that are reading it very, very concretely or literally there there's there's other humans and so how do we talk about genesis 2 and 3 especially chapter 3 where we have this fascinating story about shame and brokenness and distance and fear um and grabbing and you know and then god clothing right like in in their in their brokenness they put on fig leaves and yet god is going to tell them to take those off and to put on garments of animal skin and it's it's a way i always saw that part of the story as god's like reconciliation in that moment like god's saying like i i see you i see you in the in the state that you're in you're in a state of fear and shame and distance and brokenness and i'm not gonna say stupid human get naked and get back into the garden instead you know i'm gonna meet you in that and here is here is something better for you Here's something that will keep you warm. Here's something that will protect you. Here's something that I've sacrificed for your life, for your future. Um, it's a way I think of God meeting them in that moment and clothing them for the road ahead. Well, this is where I, I probably, um, this is probably my more fringy theology, I guess I would call it, but I really enjoy it. Like, I just think that humans were created good. I don't mm. think we were created sinful which is probably a much longer conversation. But when I think about humans being created good, I think there's just always a journey that we're on. Yeah. Like where we're further away from what, who we were created to be and when we're closer to it. And I think it's just, it's a movement back and forth. And I don't think God sees us any differently, no matter where we are on that, on that spectrum. I think God just loves us. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And I think the the biblical the biblical narrative is a God who is constantly trying to say, "Hey, let's return to the good here. Let's re-, you know that's that's the word repentance, right? Return to the good, like teshuva. Let's let's return to the good. Let's return to the good. You know, in in the Greek language, it's metanoia, changing the way you think. Like, hey, let's let's reframe that. Let's let's maybe not think that, and let's think this thing because I want you to return." to this path, to get on this trajectory, you know, to head in this direction, because it leads to life and an abundant life and a, in a, a grace filled life. And, you know, and, and maybe not prosperity in an earthly sense, but it leads to like fullness of relationship. It leads to 
you know, love, like actually being a part of a community where you feel you belong. And so that's, I think what we're all looking for, right, is to know that we belong and that we're loved and cared for. And, and, and we have, we can have the greatest vacation ever. And we can also sit around and play a board game with our kids and watch their smiles happen and be like, man, does life get any better than this? Right. And like, it's those moments of like love and community and belonging that are really the most transformational. And I think that's what the scriptures and Genesis chapter three are actually pointing us to. I feel like sitting inside prison with people who are incarcerated is one of the holiest places I get to sit in Mm. because there is such an appreciation and joy that comes from being in community with people. Like there's such a deficit that when they have it, they're like, you can't, you can't get away from that light and that love and Mm. what that feels like. And so for me, that's a hundred percent it because that you can find that anywhere. It doesn't matter where you go. That is the thing people need. Like that, that's the human, we need to be loved. We need to be in community with each other. We need to have a place where we can belong and nobody wants it to be on the outside. Right, right. And I think that's the story of Genesis 3 is God saying, I see you. I see the way that you've, you know, the way you're headed and I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. And let's move this into a holy direction. Let's move this into a direction that brings forth life. Let's not leave you in this place of distance and fear and shame, because that isn't the trajectory that I have for you. Right. Because all the things that don't happen, like God doesn't change their names. God doesn't kill them and start over. Right. God doesn't leave them and abandon them. Didn't pick a different group of people. Like there's a very, like all the things that God doesn't do tells us a lot about who God is too. Like this story really does tell us who God is. Wow. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. And I really appreciate this conversation, Lisa, because I think you're really bringing Eve's story to a very different place than maybe we've been handed. And so thank you so much for your wisdom and your grace of, uh, engaging this story as a, as a learner. Is there anything that uh, you can point us to that you're involved in or that you'd like to plug for uh, those that may be listening? Well, if this kind of conversation gets you real excited, <laughs> like you can always join a study at 40 Orchards. Jason is, and Steph and I all do a podcast called Searching the Sacred. You could certainly pop in there. Yeah. I mean, we'd just love to have you in it. Like, the more voices and the more diverse those voices are, the better any study is. I love 40 Orchards. It's such a meaningful part of my life and I am so grateful to have you on. And we will put the links um, to 40 Orchards and Searching the Sacred in the show notes for this episode so people have an easy way to find those things. Um, And again, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today on Deconstructing the Bible. Look forward to much more. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason.